Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight, and our topic is A Way Forward, Part 1. Uh, now, what do I mean by the way forward? Uh, I've been thinking about two things at once that are sort of hard to hold in my mind at the same time. One is this beautiful vision that I get from the passages in the prophets in the Bible, from things that Swedenborg says, of a world that is to come, that's going to be full of love, of people treating each other well, um, uh, th that evil is more easily recognized, that the ego is put in its place, evil's pushed to perimeter, uh, perimeter um, there's more and more understanding of, of Scripture, there's a closer and closer connection that develops with heaven, so that people are getting individual and collective guidance and new things. It's supposed to be spiritually like a spring, where new things are actually coming up out of the earth, so to speak. In other words, it's not going to be top down. They'll just be spontaneous new things that are coming up as the Lord works through this person and that person and the other person to develop ways of healing our earth and each other and, and all sorts of things. Some of this is already going on, but there will be a great increase of all that. And, but to juxtapose that at the same time with stuff like the shooting that just happened on Sunday where people are in church and they're just getting sprayed with bullets or whatever and the shooting in Las Vegas a little while ago and, and, um, and so many mass shootings now and, and so much other mayhem and war and famine and stuff going and you just sort of, wow, how? So if we're going there, if we're going to some beautiful place of peace and love and, and people getting along and increased presence of the Lord in heaven on earth, how do we get there from where we are? Because where we are is not entirely like that. I'm not saying there aren't lots of good people and good things going on in the world, but wow, there's some really bad things going on in the world too. So how do we go from where we are to where we're headed? And so that's why our title tonight is A Way Forward because what's come to my mind is that Scripture really tells us something about this. Uh, specifically, we'll be looking tonight at the Exodus story. Uh, scripture kind of describes it. So a uh, happy thought that I'm having lately, uh, it's a, maybe a weird thought, but when you read the Exodus story in the Old Testament, it's describing events that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. But I think what that stands for spiritually may not even have happened yet. We may still be enslaved in Egypt and we haven't even left yet. You know, and that's exciting to me. The thought that, oh, well, what, what would Moses be? What are the Ten Commandments? You know, what, what are these things that are going to lead us forward? So that's what we're going to be exploring tonight. If that's of any interest or relevance to you, good friends, do join me and let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven, the one God of earth. We pray for your presence among us. You are the word made flesh. Please help us as we open the pages of your word. Show us, Lord, the way forward. Amen. Amen. Sending love to those of you out there online and getting the audio podcast in here in the room. A great pleasure to be with you as always and talking about important things. So I was thinking about the Exodus story. Uh, often in this Bible study, we will pick a word or a phrase or a theme or something like that, and we'll look at it all over the place. Here it is in Genesis, there it is in the prophets, here it is in the gospels, there it is in Revelation, what have you. And, um, and sometimes we're just looking at one word, you know, the word fig or something, and we look at that all the way through. And scripture, works that way. It's astonishing to me what happens when you look at an individual word and see how it plays out over time like that. So, but scripture also works on this kind of big picture level. And it's a little harder to get at that because the big picture is made up of all these little details. Uh, it astonished me to uh, look this morning at the fact the entire story of Jesus 
in the New Testament, the four Gospels, you know, four different stories, accounts of the same story, essentially, uh, all of that fills 89 chapters. So there are 89 chapters. If you wanted to read the whole story, it's 89 chapters. If you wanted to read the whole Exodus story, it's 177 chapters, almost twice as long as everything we know about Jesus in the New Testament. It's a very, very long story. So it's a hard story to cover in Bible study. Uh, you know, how, how do you cover the whole <laughs> Exodus? It, it starts by my reckoning in Genesis 37 and it ends in Judges 2 verse 10 or something like that. So you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and into Judges. That whole, you know, 177 chapters uh, to just, just for this one phase of this story of how the children of Israel end up uh, down in Egypt and coming into slavery and then getting out of there and wandering to the Holy Land. And as I say, is that a picture of what needs to happen? Uh, we're taught by Swedenborg that that's what needs to happen with our individual spiritual lives. Is that also something that can help us in our whole sort of global culture? You know, is that something that can help us uh, figure out a way forward. So that's what we'll be exploring tonight. And let's uh, start here in Genesis 37. I've just picked out a few passages. Genesis is all the way at the beginning of your Bible. And we'll be mostly there in the Old Testament tonight. Uh, and uh, as you may know, there were these patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then Jacob had these 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph. And you may remember that Joseph, when he was young, was having dreams. Uh, and the dreams seemed to put him above the rest of his brothers, that all the brothers and the parents were bowing down to him. Or, you know, this really irritated the other brothers. So they did what any uh, loving family would do in that situation. They sold him into slavery. And so... Um, in Genesis 37, uh, verse 36, this is about um, Joseph. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Yes. Um, so something that struck me, because if you know the story, the basic outline of it, the children of Israel all end up in Egypt and they become increasingly enslaved and we'll look at that in a bit. But it was of interest to me that long before they went through that, Joseph went through that as an individual. He sort of, in a way, went through what they were all going to go through. You know, they were all still up in the Holy Land, but he went down and went into slavery in Egypt and then into prison and so on and then got into a better situation. And it's kind of a little mini picture in his life of what the whole people, all the children of Israel, you know, all the descendants of him and his brothers, what would happen with them in the future. That intrigued me. Uh, look at Genesis 42, verses 1 to 3. I just out of this 177 chapters, you'll be happy to know that I tried to reduce it a little bit. Um, <laughs> So now Joseph was sold into slavery, but he was very successful and did really well. And when he was in prison, he became basically running the prison. And then he was discovered by Pharaoh and brought out and was actually running all of Egypt. He was second in command, but Pharaoh put everything in his hands. And he was buying food for everyone because this famine was coming that he had foreseen in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. So look at the first three verses there in Genesis 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. That's right, but Benjamin stayed behind. And so the original reason why the children of Israel went to Egypt was because they were having famine where they were. They were starving. And unbeknownst to them, their brother Joseph 
had figured out a way. He had stored up all the all this grain during the the good years, the seven good years, and now he had grain while everybody else was in a state of famine. And so they went down there to be um, to get some of that food. And look at uh, Genesis 47. Verse 27, now this is what it was like um, when they first went down. So what happened was they bought, you know, we're skipping over all these details, but uh, what happened was that as they bought this grain, then bit by bit they found out that this actually was Joseph down there who was running the place. And so they all went down to join him. And they got to live in the best sort of beautiful central rich area in Egypt. Look at verse 27 in Genesis 47. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Mm. Yeah, so when they first went down to Egypt, it wasn't horrible. They, they, were, they were thriving. It was great. They had food. Uh, there were a place for their flocks, and, and, and they had the support of Joseph, who was their own relative, who was in the, you know, high up in the government. And so things were good to begin with. But just turn to the right to Exodus 1, and you'll hear that things got to be not so good after a little while. Um, uh, Let's just read chapter 1 all the way down to verse 14 there. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So 70 people came down to join Joseph, who was already in Egypt. Go on. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. Mm, that whole generation died, right. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so far, so good. I mean, they're, they're thriving, they're growing, they avoided the famine and everything, they survived, but their growth became a problem. How did that go? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Yeah, see that loyalty was broke, that, that was gone. You know, any sense of like, oh no, Joseph is great. Any friend of Joseph's is a friend of mine. No, that's not there anymore. Go on. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. It's a little bit of a problem when that Israelite population actually gets to the point where it outnumbers the Egyptians. So they're, they're, they're worried about it. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Uh-oh, that would be problematic because they're right there in the center. So what if they fight against us? There was no threat of this happening. The Israelites were very happy, but... They, the, the Egyptians were worried about it. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. Huh. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pythom and Ramses. Yeah, and they were hoping that all this affliction would kind of keep the population down, maybe the hardship and everything, but what happened? But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Hmm. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. There it is. In mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So um, because of the threat, they just decided we've got to dominate them. We've got to push them down, we have to enslave them. And so what had been a great situation before uh, became uh, very dire. Okay, now note, good friends, where are we? We're in Exodus chapter 1, right? And things just turned bad, didn't it? Like the beginning of the chapter, it was good. Whoops, now it's bad, right? So when does the Lord do something about it? We'll look over in Exodus 3, 
which is pretty soon, right? It's a chapter and a half later, what, what, does, what happens here? Uh, now Moses, as you may know, had grown up Egyptian. He's kind of like Joseph, where Joseph was sort of looked Egyptian on the outside, but was really an Israelite on the inside. And Moses, too, had grown up as sort of adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, uh, but then he'd gone off to be a shepherd when some you know, bad things went down at some point. And here we go at the beginning of Exodus chapter 3. Let's just read down to verse 8. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mm. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. This is the famous burning bush. Yep. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Mm. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Mm. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And what did the Lord say? And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Now, Moses wasn't even there anymore. He had, he had left. He had been part of the Egyptian royal family, and then he just simply left. And... Um, uh, so, but God knew where he was and tracked him down. Cara, do you want to read that message right there? Message right Cara. there. Yeah. And um, that, this is this one over here. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. There we go. It's a technical night, guys. Technical night, technical, technical night. night. Must be an important Thanks, message. Dave, sorry. <laughs> and um, so God got Moses, who wasn't even there anymore, but he said, Moses is the person who's going to lead these people out. This is, I've heard their cry, so I'm working on a solution. Now, do the people in Egypt know that? They don't know it. We, the reader, know it, but the people in Egypt, they have no idea about Moses or where he went. He just disappeared a while ago. But here's the Lord calling him because he knows their sorrows. And verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And the Jebusites, yes. And um, so this is the Lord's way of bringing people. This is why the book is called the Exodus. Exodus is from a Greek word that means the way out. I titled it the way forward, but you could title it the way out too. The, uh, it's, it's the, you know, that's the exit, the exodus, that's, that's the way out. And so the Lord is starting to save them by calling Moses. And as you may remember, he sends Moses in to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And at first it goes badly and they double the labor for the uh, Israelites and the Israelites are very upset. But Moses persists. And all during these first chapters from 3 to 14 in Exodus, there are a series of miracles I think there's 10 of them, aren't there? There's a series of miracles that uh, Moses keeps doing, boom, 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 to get Pharaoh to let the people go. And it struck me thinking about this. If you're uh, just an everyday regular uh, Israelite at this point, what are you doing about your own salvation? Nothing. You are doing nothing. Some guy is going in and talking to Pharaoh and miracles are happening and you're just looking up, going, oh, raining frogs. Oh, oh, the river turned to blood. Oh, you know, you have, there's nothing you're doing. You're just riding along, hoping that he wins the argument. But, but you're, you're, you know, just a pawn in the chess game of life at this point and and uh, Moses and Pharaoh are, are battling about whether you're going to be set free from the land or not. 
Uh, so that interests me. And look at Exodus 14, because what ends up happening is that the Lord does say, in fact, he even engineers it to where Pharaoh actually sends them away because all the firstborn die. And so he just sends them out. And let's pick up at verse 26 here, just down to 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians. So they had crossed over on the dry land, and then the Egyptians were pursuing, and now, whoops, you know, not good for the Egyptians. Upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. There were lots of Egyptian non-military citizens who were still in Egypt, but Pharaoh and all his armies got entirely destroyed. Um, go on. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Yes, and this language in verse 30 is interesting. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Saved. It's about salvation, right? Out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Up until then, what is it like being a, a regular old Israelite? At that point, it's like, well, I don't know. The Egyptians are powerful. I don't, is this Moses guy going to do something for us? Or fair, like, who should, we, who should we follow? I don't know. And, and Moses is saying, well, no, follow me. You know, the power of God is with me. And, and so eventually they're... Oh, okay, I, I guess. Oh, yeah, it seems like he's actually beating Pharaoh. All right, we'll, we'll go. But you see, even up to that last verse there, they're just seeing these great works. They're hardly participating at all. They finally left home. You know, they despoiled the Egyptians and they left home, but there was hardly anything they had to do yet. They did this Passover and, and now they're exiting. So that was sort of a first phase. All right, and then I just want to point out that on Exodus 19, they arrive at Sinai, if you see that first verse in Exodus 19. So Sinai was this mountain in the wilderness, and so pretty quickly, right? They left in Exodus 14, and boom, by 19 there at Sinai already, right there. Mm -hmm. And then, interestingly, they spend almost an entire year at Mount Sinai, you know, I think of them wandering in the wilderness, but they stayed there at Sinai for a long, long time. And so uh, look at what happens in Exodus 20, little thing we like to call the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, that this, these, the Ten Commandments are handed down to them. Oh, and what is that followed by? Oh, well, Exodus 21 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 28, all the way through Exodus. Oh, the whole of Leviticus. Keep going. Leviticus, Leviticus, all the way through the end of Leviticus, off into Numbers. Uh, numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 all occur at Mount Sinai. Just whole books are at Mount, and they're all rules. Everything in there is rule. I mean, there, there are rules about building the tabernacle. There are rules about what you should eat, how you should do, do you know, the festivals every year, and, and all kinds of different rules of behavior. Leviticus comes from a word having to do with, with the law, and Levi was in charge of all that, so it's called Leviticus. And, and um, so you spend a whole year early on in this journey. You spend a whole year at the base of Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments are only the beginning of it. Chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters of rules. So, you see what I mean? At the beginning, in Egypt, you're passive. God and Moses are fighting against Pharaoh, and you're just watching a ping-pong match, and <laughs> you, you, you don't know who's winning. You know, that's the first phase. 
Second phase, though, is, oh, there's something you're supposed to do. There's a law here. In fact, there are rather a lot of laws. They take a long time to lay them all out. Here are things you're supposed to be doing. You set up your tent this way and do this and camp over here and eat that and go here. You know, there are all these. So the second phase is God and Moses laying out all these uh, rules. Okay, and look at 9 verses 1 to 5 there. Uh, Exodus 9? Numbers, numbers, all the way over to nine. Numbers. Okay. We fast forward a little bit there. Yeah. Numbers 9, 1 to 5. Yes. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. See, they're still in the wilderness of Sinai. In the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Oh, you see what I mean? It's the second year already. They've, they've spent just about an entire year there. And what does he say? Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. Oh, they've been there so long. They did this Passover, this special feast that was commanded to them when they were leaving Egypt. And now a whole year has elapsed and it's time to do the Passover again. And they're, they're still just at Sinai there. Go on. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. Ah, they were obedient. Everything he says they do. So God is speaking to Moses. Moses speaks to the people and they do everything he says. That's nice. A look at Numbers chapter 10, <laughs> verses 11 and 12. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year. Okay, so this is the 20th day of the second month. So they've, they've been there another like seven weeks or something after the year was up. And then what happened? The cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. Mm. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their Whoa. journeys. They left Sinai. Okay. They've been there this whole, you know, books and books. So now we're leaving Sinai. Okay, we're getting going. And what happened? Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Yes, that's right. Okay. And look at chapter 13. And I'll just have to summarize here in the interest of time. But what goes on, if you start at 13, verse 26, that they have an opportunity to go spy out the land. And some people said, oh, it's really great. There's wonderful food there. But other ones said, oh, no, they're, they're giants. It's terrifying. We'll just be eaten alive if we go up there. And uh, they reported at the end of that chapter, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. You know, uh, yikes, we'll, we'll never make it. So they had an opportunity. You see, they left Sinai in chapter 10, and by chapter 13, they could have just walked right into the Holy Land, but they got scared, gave a bad report, everybody was terrified, and that's when they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before going in. They were, they were knocking on the door. They just spend a nice year at Sinai and then go on into the Holy... Oh, no, they were scared. Okay, so they, they wandered around for a while first until that whole generation died out. Um, I like this little point. Look at 14 verses 1 to 4. This is how they reacted when they heard that bad report. This is what Moses had to put up with, you know what I mean? So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. That's right. Or if only we had died in, the wilder in this wilderness. Yes. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? <laughs> I love that. Isn't that a great moment? Wouldn't it be better? And, and so what do they do? They actually make a plan. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Yep. <laughs> Let's fire Moses. Have you ever seen this in a business setting? It happens sometimes. Let's fire Moses, <laughs> get a new person to take us back to Egypt because we were better off where we were before. I just love that. 
So it, wouldn't it be better to... So it wasn't all smooth sailing for the children of Israel uh, getting to the Holy Land. In fact, that entire generation had to, had to die out. Uh, look at verse 34 down there. Um, 34. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days. 40 days. For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. Uh-oh. Okay. So they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they were afraid to go into the land when the Lord had lined it all up for them and they didn't want to go. Okay. So if you turn to the right and go to Deuteronomy and go all the way back to chapter 34, the end of Deuteronomy, a lot of Deuteronomy is the reissuing of the law again because the first set got broken and, uh, and a reiteration of a lot of the rules and so on. And here's Moses... And uh, it's kind of poignant. He, he was, you know, he was a good old age by this point. But uh, let's just read part of chapter 34 there. Starting at the top? Yes, yeah, start at the top. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea. So some of you know what's going on here, that Moses is actually looking across the Jordan River at the whole Holy Land, but he's not going to be able to go in himself. The south and the plain of the Valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Mm. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, mm. but you shall not cross over there. Oh, huh. So Moses has been a big part of the story so far. In kind of part one, it was God and Moses fighting with Pharaoh, and everybody's just kind of passive. And then in part two, there was God and Moses leading the people and showing them the way. But now Moses is dying, so what's going to happen there? Go on. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Okay, and look down to verse 9. Here we get his replacement. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, mm. for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But it does go on to say that there was never a prophet like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face. Okay, so that's the end of Deuteronomy. And then in Joshua, so Joshua becomes the leader. He takes them into the land in chapters 3 and 4. They finally cross the Jordan River and go into the land. And uh, then what happens for the rest of Joshua is a lot of fighting. So they've entered the Holy Land, but they fight at Ai, they fight at Jericho, they fight here, they fight there. They have to fight all the tribes that already live there. And the, the whole book of Joshua pretty much is taken up with these various different battles and the establishment of the land and where the different tribes would live there. And uh, if you flip to the right and get to Judges, you look at verse 1 in chapter 1 there, and you see that Joshua has died now by the end of that time. So he went with them through all that battling. And I want to look at, well, the story is sort of retold in chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. Uh, what goes on here? So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Okay, so there were elders who went all the way back to the time when they'd seen those amazing things that the Lord did to get them out of the land of Egypt and so on. Go on. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. Okay. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. Oh, really? Nor the work which he had done for Israel. 
Oh, so what do they do in verse 11? Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord oh. and served the Baals. The Baals, other gods. Didn't take them a whole heck of a long time, did it? Like all that generation died in verse 10 and by verse 11, they're already being evil. They already forgot the Lord, like boom, just forgot the Lord. Whew. Okay, so that didn't end very well. But an interesting story up to there. And... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, again, you get this, didn't we have that before where you had the, the, the pharaohs who knew Joseph and then they didn't know Joseph and it went badly and now here are people who knew the Lord and then there are people who didn't know the Lord and they didn't know the works that he'd done for Israel and then they turn almost immediately to, to evil and so much of the rest of the Old Testament is dealing with that problem, prophets coming, Judges coming first and then uh, the kings and the prophets, you know, try to turn people around and get them back on course. And it ends with a lot of prophecies about this great future that's coming at some point. Okay, so let's try to think about this a little bit. Um, what on earth could this have to do with anything? Let me give you a simple graphic. Those of you who are getting the stupendous visuals here. Um, <laughs> to go with our excellent professional audio. And um, the, <laughs> so I see three sort of phases in this story that I've written here. Number one, God and Moses do everything. We do nothing. I'm picturing that we're an Israelite. God and Moses do everything. We do nothing. Phase one. I like that. Number two, God and Moses teach us the rules and show us the way. Ten Commandments, books and books of other rules, and the pillar of cloud. We didn't read about it, but the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night, cloud by day, leading them through the, through the um, wilderness. And so now there's a lot more that we have to do. You know, we've sacrificed our comfort and we're sometimes grumbling and we're out there in the wilderness, but they're showing us stuff about, oh, there are rules, you need to be this way, camp here, do this, do that, you know? And then number three, God and Joshua, because this is after Moses dies. Now you've got God and Joshua lead us to fight and conquer enemies. Ooh, our job got a lot more intense in that third part, did it not? It's just striking that in phase one, you do nothing. You just wait for the news. You wait to see it on the evening news. Oh, how did the debate go between Moses and Pharaoh? Oh, another win for Moses? That's good. Sounds good. And somebody said we should get ready to leave or something. But, you know, there's not much that you do. But by phase three here, oh, you're strapping on your helmet. You're getting your spear and your bow. And, and you are, you know, you're very engaged by this point, right? We're a fighting force uh, conquering the enemies. Now, we still have God and Joshua leading us. And there's some great stories in here we didn't cover tonight where the Lord will tell them what to do and they do it and they're successful and then they all get in their minds, yeah, and we're going to do it again tomorrow. And they go and the Lord didn't say to do that one and then they get clobbered and then they go get all depressed and they wonder, well, woe is me. And they say, well, you stopped listening to the Lord. <laughs> he told you when to fight and, and all that. And so it takes a while to get them hooked up with the leadership and everything. But they're going and having all these conquests and conquering this land and driving out these uh, enemies who live there. And uh, it, so it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that was there to pull them through these 177 chapters. And the beginning of the 177 chapters wasn't the beginning of uh, the whole story. It was just the point at which you went down to Egypt. But they went down to Egypt and, and then they were able to get out and finally get to the Holy Land, the land of milk and honey. And so I see these three phases in there, just big picture kind of things. Okay, first thing to talk about then obviously would be what does Moses mean? What does Joshua mean? It's always kind of bugged me why Moses was in many ways a great leader. We didn't read about that little story where he got kind of mad and he smashed a rock to make water come out at one point and that was a bad thing. But um, most of what he did was really good. A very strong leader. That's who the Lord chose to lead them out. And he was successful in his, you know, interactions with Pharaoh and all that. 
Why didn't he get to go in? Was it torture to just take him up the mountain and look over the river and have to see into the whole... See, there it is. You can look, but you can't have it. And, and then he dies on, on that mountain and Joshua takes them in. But uh, that has to do with their meaning. Moses, I underline Moses here in blue for those of you getting the visuals uh, because Moses has to do with truth. It seems pretty obvious when you think about it. Like, doesn't Scripture use the phrase the law and the prophets? The law and the prophets. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. And uh, Moses represents the law. He's the law giver. It's Moses who goes up the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments from God and brings them down. He, he represents the law. And then after that, you get the prophets. And so he means, uh, Swedenborg explains him sometimes as meaning the historical portion of the Old Testament. He's the narrative sort of stories. Moses represents all of that. So he represents scripture. He represents the word represents divine truth, and also specifically the law aspect, the code, you know, of how to live, that kind of thing. So he's divine truth. Joshua, as some of you may know, I was so struck by this a few years ago doing a Bible study to learn, although it doesn't sound at all alike in English, Joshua is also another familiar name that we know. Joshua is the Hebrew name for a Greek name, Jesus, which is Jesus. This is, this is Jesus. Joshua and Jesus are exactly the same name in Scripture. You just have to take my word for it, but you can look it up and see. But uh, So you have the book of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus takes you through all these conquests, right? Well, I think what's going on here is that Moses is like the Word. You get hooked up with the Word, and the Word leads you, Right? But then there's some point at which to do that battle, you need more than just the truth. You need the love that Jesus represents. And that's why I underlined Joshua in red here. Um, that's where a, and the presence of God increases, where the Lord himself, the living God, is helping us. You know, that's, that's Jesus. That's who that is, helping us to make those conquests against the enemies. Uh, Paul says very clearly in the epistles that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against things that are in the spiritual world. So the enemies that I'm thinking of for tonight's purposes are not physical enemies. They're enemies that get people to shoot other people. You know, they're enemies that get people to mistreat other people. They're those negative emotions, if you will. They're uh, harmful impulses, their input coming in from hell. Those are the enemies that need to be conquered. You're not going to be at peace. You're not going to be really living in tranquility in a land of milk and honey if you still have enemies in that land who are trying to oppose what you're doing. But the enemies are spiritual things. They're not other people on, on this earth. Um, so, what I think these things mean is that we start out in a situation where we're really relatively powerless. We're, we, are, um, uh, we are enslaved in Egypt. What does Egypt mean? Well, um, Egypt, to my mind, it often has to do, the way Swedenborg explains it, with knowledge. also has to do with things like, I don't know, maybe science and technology, things like that. Didn't Egypt, like I imagine Moses, like when you start out an Israelite and then you go into an Egyptian headquarters, it's just got to be astonishing. The difference, you know, going from like living in a tent uh, to this amazing culture that has all this uh, art and architecture and science and mysticism and, you know, kind of amazing uh, culture. Um, so that's great at first. Like all that stuff is wonderful. They've got grain. You know, when we were going through our lives, uh, Egypt really feeds you at a certain point in your life. You're sort of, your spiritual life is sort of starving. You need to learn things. We talked about that last time with gathering all the vessels. So you go to Egypt. You learn, learn, learn. That's great. Good. You do all this learning. But at some point, that knowledge and technology and science can take over. When it becomes threatened by the spiritual thing that's supposed to be in the center of it, 
then it dominates that. You know, it enslaves it. And so are we in a situation now? I don't know. Are we in a situation where science and technology and knowledge in some ways are the enemies, sometimes the enemies, sometimes the friends, but sometimes the enemies of, of spirituality or love or things like that? You know, uh, are we in a situation like that? I'm just, just riffing now, but I think that's got something to do with what the Egypt means. And so Moses is someone who knows that whole system, but also is an Israelite at heart and can lead the people out of there. So what I picture, what I dream of, is that maybe we're at a point uh, as an entire culture uh, where we're getting kind of fed up with this. At first it was okay, right? But as the slavery increases, they start to cry out to God. They say, please, you know, we can't stand this. But this, this, is, not, this is no good. Uh, I think, I hope actually, I actually hope that there's a time in the not too distant future that people look back on this time as so dark. Like we were just about to finish killing each other. You know what I mean? So dark. I really hope that's how things look not too long from now. And they'll say, how did you live through that time? He said, well, you know, there were, there were good things, and there, you know, but um, I, I think this is, this is a very, very dark time in some ways. And yes, it's great that all this evil is coming out in the open, so you can clearly see, everybody can see it, you know. Uh, it's much more out in the open than it ever was, but we don't seem to have found the breaks yet. <laughs> You know what I mean? We don't seem to know how to stop this. Um, so, uh, what is the way out? The first thing is that somehow this happens. God and Moses start doing these miracles, and we have like nothing to do with it. We're, we're just children. We're just watching something happen. I don't know what this looks like. But it's a cool idea to me to think about this as something to do with the word and the, and the truth, the miraculous power of the truth. Like the word is just going in and doing these miracles. Another kind of analogy, don't know if this is too much all at once, but Moses versus Joshua. Why do you have Moses first and then you have Joshua? Well, I think of Moses as being a lot like John the Baptist and Jesus. That's another twosome, right? John the Baptist comes first but he must decrease, Jesus must increase, same kind of thing. Moses and Jesus, Joshua, and John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, there's an order to it. John the Baptist, too, represents the word, repentance, that kind of thing. Like this would be more the repentance phase, and then you get into the regeneration phase uh, when, when you get into the fighting down here. Like maybe this is repentance, reformation, regeneration in these three stages. Um, uh, then at some point we get led out of where we were, led out of that dark condition where we're enslaved to these forces of hell that were dominating us. And this is what happens in the life of the individual. It's also what happens, I hope, collectively as more and more individuals take that journey um, that those good things, the good, the good starts to outweigh the evil. You start to be able to recognize it for what it was. You get some distance. Literally, they get distance from Egypt, right? You get away from that, whatever it was. I often think of it in terms of an addiction or something like that, but it takes many different forms. And the children of Israel are taken out of there, and there starts to be something. They take little baby steps, you know, but they start to have things that they need to do. Here's a new code. Here are new rules, thoughts, you know, methods of being. Like there's going to be a discipline imposed. Before, you were just obeying Pharaoh. You were just doing what the slavery thing said you had to do. That was your boss. And uh, if the boss was mean to you or good to you, you had no control over it. But now you're under new management and you're starting to have these rules 
uh, that are represented by the Ten Commandments and all those other statutes is striking that they stayed at the base of that mountain for a year or more just getting the rules, you know? A long, long time. This is the code to live. You need to be thinking this. You need to understand that's evil. Here, here, you need to do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. You notice how many of the Ten Commandments, especially in the latter half there, are thou shalt not do this or that. It's what to stop doing, right? Lay those things aside. And all kinds of rules of spiritually about how to conduct our lives. Also rules about how to live together, which is kind of a picture of the tabernacle, how to have the Lord at the center of your life. And hey, this part is supposed to camp on the east. This is supposed to be on the west. You pick up this first. You wrap this in a badger skin. You move in this order. You know, it's organizing everybody together and turning them. You imagine when you're all just slaves. Some are slaves over here. Some are slaves over there. Whatever. It's it's a unifying thing, bringing them all together. And so, uh, but doesn't the story imply? that there will be an element of wilderness to this phase two. That, that's where that takes place. So there will be things in us that say, oh, I would love to go back to where we were. Let's pick a different, <laughs> let's stop following the word, elect a new captain and go back, you know, because I think it was better. Where, where we were was, was a better situation. And so we know the lower self is going to be doing some grumbling and feeling a little starving or put out while we go through this phase. But on the other hand of God of be days, uh, the Lord starts to give you this manna from heaven, just this magical little delight that comes down. At first, you don't know what it is, but the Lord starts to feed you from within, you know, like you're really getting hooked up with the Lord in a different way. Before, you know, these people didn't even know the Lord at all. They had no, hadn't heard, you know, Moses even had to ask, uh, so uh, what, what's your name again? You know, <laughs> no clue. They completely forgotten the whole thing. And so now they're getting to know the Lord. Oh, oh, you're leading us from here. We need to follow that. That's the pillar of cloud and fire and so on. And this is all about us following the word and learning those truths, sort of reworking our minds until we're under new management, right? There's a new thought structure, a new code in there. Is this making any sense? So then you have a third phase where you cross, and I think the reason Moses dies in the, in the way that it's described is there's so far, I want to word this carefully, uh, and it would help too if I had the foggiest idea of what I was saying. Uh, the, 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 the truth aspect like just following a set of instructions in a book that you're trying to understand only takes you so far. Does that make sense? At some point you need the living God in your mind, like it says Isaiah 30, verse 21. You'll hear a voice behind you telling you which way to go when you turn to the left or the right. You know, something more internalized. This is Joshua, like the living God, the divine human, in your mind and saying, okay, tomorrow we fight this. You know, the next day, get ready for this. No, we won't fight. No, this time we'll hide over here or take these pictures, break them, do this, do that. You know, you get all the marching orders for how to do this fighting and conquering these enemies because now we've been strengthened enough by all this truth that we have in our minds. Now when we start to apply it to a life of love and love is the holy land, when you're just in Truth City, you're out in the wilderness and you're a little starving and a little grumpy. But once you get into love land down here and you're being led by the Lord through that love, love is what really gives you the power to fight those enemies and conquer them. That's when you're really ready to engage with the enemy because you have something in your heart that's driving you with that love. That's what the Holy Land is and entering into that Holy Land. And so wouldn't it be great if this happened, wouldn't it be great if like there was an increase of truth and understanding and people started to load a different thing in their minds and this Bible that so many people have felt like, well, I don't know, I hate to throw it out, but it really makes no sense whatsoever and I hate what people say about it. You know, Well, wouldn't it be great if that sort of came back into play and there were some rules that we were learning from it 
And wouldn't it be great if in time as we do the repentance and we, and we walk forward and that whole first generation, our old self, starts to die off, you know? Just be out there 40 years of temptation and be out there long enough that that old, that old self is just not in charge. That whole generation is gone. And now the Lord can lead that new generation in there uh, into the, across the Jordan, into the, into the promised land, and start to clean things up. And I think that happens within us, in our own hearts, but I'm also picturing that in our world. Isn't there a fair amount? I don't think you'd run out by next Wednesday if you started trying to clean up the planet, right? I don't think you'd run out of stuff in a week and a half, be done before Thanksgiving. No, I don't think that's going to happen. There's a lot of work to be done to clean up this, clean up that, figure out new ways to do this and new ways to do that. I mentioned the spring earlier and these things just, I picture all these grassroots kind of things coming up. It's like the Lord is dealing with this person and showing them, hey, here's how to deal with that problem. Oh, that's great. I never know. You know, here's a way to deal with mental illness. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you. Here's another way. Not that this isn't happening now, but I just picture it happening when heaven, heaven's able to contact us. You know, that's what that tabernacle means, the presence of heaven with us and the Lord. Once you get into that realm, then you're able to get this inspiration, you know, and guidance, and you know where to go and what to do with your life and everything. Well, you get a whole bunch of people running around this world who are living that way. That's going to get really exciting, and people gathering together and working together, respecting each other's differences. It's not supposed to be a cookie-cutter thing. Uh, Everybody brings their own gifts. So uh, it's an exciting thought to me that although this literally happened, this Exodus story, a long, 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 long time ago, and it got written down, the reason it's in Scripture is because this applies, and it applies in the life of the individual, and it applies on a massive scale to whole cultures and eras of the human race. And it's an exciting, hopeful, encouraging thought to me that we have not left Egypt yet. Like great things have yet to happen. There's a very exciting future for the human race. And we're still fumbling around in slavery here. Uh, but the Lord is already talking to Moses out there somewhere, you know, on the backside of that mountain. And at some point, uh, the, fire, the fireworks start and, uh, and we're getting ready to leave. We're doing the Passover and, and we're about to be released and enter a new, a new uh, era. And the exciting thing is that although in some ways in the story the idea is that the children of Israel are just going back to a holy land that they used to sojourn in, they were only sojourners there. It wasn't there before. They just sojourned there. But now we're going back to sort of own it. And so the idea of people moving into love and living there and taking up their habitation there, and you know, here will I dwell, you know, um, that's an exciting thought. So I think that's at least the general gist of the direction in which everything needs to go, doesn't it? And you got all these scriptural prophecies that it's going to be so great and of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end and not single one of the stakes of the tabernacle will ever be taken down. And um, uh, there's these great prophecies of how beautiful it's going to be in the future. So I hope that we're going there. And I like this idea, friends, that there are little clues in this here old worn out Bible. There are clues about what that journey is going to be like and maybe what some next steps might be. So uh, those are my thoughts for tonight. And uh, we'll talk some more about this next week with a way forward. And thank you for your kind attention, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one God of heaven and earth, we thank you, Lord, for the amazing quality of your word, how it is above time and space. It speaks to us in the language of concrete, physical things that we can comprehend, and yet you're telling us stories about spiritual things and possibly even about things that have not yet occurred 
to the human race. Lead us forward, Lord. Teach us. We're ready to leave Egypt. We want to go out there and worship you in the wilderness. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It's a beginning. <laughs>